This is Undisciplined. I'm Shoshana Buxbaum. Dreams are one of the most universal human experiences. And if you look closely, dreams play a central role in early human history, from the Bible and Quran to ancient Greece and Rome. By the end of the 20th century, many Western researchers were less interested in the content of dreams and more focused on their biochemical mechanisms. Recently, scientists have begun re-examining their previous assumptions. So why do we dream? Are dreams capable of predicting the future, unlocking creativity? What do dreams tell us about the world around us? Siddhartha Ribeiro sought to answer those questions and more. His new book draws upon both scientific and historical research. It's called The Oracle of Night, The History and Science of Dreams. He's also the founder and vice director of the Brain Institute at the Federal University of Rio Grande do Norte in Brazil. Siddhartha Ribeiro, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Shoshana, for the opportunity to talk about dreams uh, with such a large audience. Okay, so to start off, um, when I was reading your book, um, the, it sounds like the germ of this idea for the book started for you over two decades ago. What sparked your interest in dreams? So dreams were important in my life early on, and I tell some of that in the book, but it was not until the beginning of my PhD that I decided to make them uh, my main focus. Um, this happened because I had this, this strong inadaptation to a new environment and, and sleep and, and dreams played a big role in my adaptation. So I arrived in New York to start my PhD in 95, in Jan on January 95, and I just couldn't stop sleeping and I couldn't stop dreaming. Uh, and and, and I, I tell the story in the book, uh, for a couple of months I thought my my body was just sabotaging me completely and I was going to be sent back to Brazil and, you know, not do, not, not, not do anything that I planned to do because I just couldn't really understand what people said. I couldn't understand the, neither the content nor the language. And, and I knew English, but I just suddenly I couldn't speak English. Uh, and then after two months, uh, early spring, I suddenly adapted and suddenly I had friends and I was doing my stuff at the lab and things were going quite well. And then I realized that the sleep and dreaming were not sabotaging me. They were preparing me for challenges. Um, and then I decided to study that. And I've been doing that for since then. However, I only envisioned that this book was possible many years later when I was actually starting my postdoc at Duke University. Uh, and, and I had this feeling, I had this like panoramic feeling that if only we could uh, put in order in, in, in chronological and in, in logical order, all the, the pieces of information that we already had, it would be possible to make sense of the evolution of the human mind by, by telling the, the story of the evolution of sleep and dreams. Yeah, yeah. And so the book is really a holistic look at dreams and dreaming. As you had said, it's history, literature, psychology, neuroscience, and it's, it's beyond your your training as a neuroscientist. So why did you decide that for dreams, we needed to take this expansive look beyond a sort of like narrow scientific approach to dreaming? I think because of, I think that it was because of my strong adherence to, to evolution. If we are to understand something at the present moment, like, like dreaming in, in contemporary societies, it is not possible to just look at in, inside the brain or look uh, in, in the culture that we have now and try to figure it out because it was not put 
put uh, it was not engineered by by anybody it was not the product of, of of intelligent design it's the product of evolution so if if we want to really understand what dreams are we need to understand how they came to be and and therefore we we cannot be bound by specific uh, uh, disciplines. We have to really look into what matters at each moment. So if you're going to look at the origins of the circadian rhythm, you know, uh, 500 million years ago, and probably before that, uh, in unicellular organisms, um, then you're in the realm of, of biochemistry, of genetics. Then if you want to talk about the, the notion of dreams as, as premonitions or, or precognitive uh, images, then we need to focus on the evolution of uh, a long REM sleep uh, early in the evolution of, of mammals uh, 220 million years ago. Therefore, I had to get out of biology and towards psychology and towards uh, all these other disciplines if I wanted to, to tell a story that was actually plausible, that a conjecture that would make sense to people. Yeah. So you sort of start at the very beginning and, you know, in the earliest written records, talk about dreams and their interpretations. And you point to evidence suggesting that cave drawings are illustrating dreams. So what role did sharing and analyzing dreams play in early human history? This is a, an important part of the book, which is to imagine the minds of our ancestral uh, forefathers and mothers and, and how, how did they um, accumulate culture? And what role did dreaming play in that? Um, we have to remember, before the invention of writing, only 4,500 years ago, all the knowledge was embodied. All the knowledge was in the bodies of other people. If you wanted to learn how to hunt, if you wanted to learn how to cook, if you wanted to learn how to care for babies, you needed to be together with your elders and, and learn it from them. But when people died, it was a disaster. It was much worse than today because it was just it was not just uh, that person that people loved that would not be there, but also all that knowledge. The death of an elder was was the destruction of an encyclopedia. So imagine the emotional impact for our ancestors when they had dreams with people that had died that they loved. It was tremendous. Imagine that we were. Uh, trying to uh, get together and hunt a, a mammoth, right? And this is something that happened so many times uh, across the millennia. We needed to communicate a vision, the vision of a vision of actually succeeding in the hunt, not getting killed, right? So, and and so the book makes this argument that the source of all these ideas of this inspiration was dreaming. And this is very well documented in, in the antiquity. And it's very well documented by anthropology with, for example, uh, South American indigenous populations who still, to these days, go towards dreaming, not in a passive manner, but in an active manner. They go into dreaming looking for something, looking for a name, looking for a new way of doing something, looking for cultural, um, cultural um, value. Yeah, and so how did we get from this really central um the central place that dreams held in cohesiveness and narrative and understanding the world um how did we get from that place to now where especially like in the US and in Europe there's this 
you know, dreams aren't viewed as a central part of human experience. How did we how did we sort of get to the place where we're at now? <laughs> I think it has to do with the the intertwined development of science and capitalism. Uh, about 500 years ago, um, the guidance that dreams had provided for all the previous time ceased to be accepted in Europe and in the colonies that Europe built around the world, uh, basically to say, no, we, we need to base our, our future on technique, on mathematics, physics, biology, chemistry. We need to, if, if you are to send a, a ship to, to India to, to purchase a, a nutmeg to sell in Europe, or if you want to send a, send a ship to Africa to buy Africans uh, enslaved and sell them in the Americas, then you need to do it not because you had a, a dream, but because you have a, a business plan and, and it, it has uh, it agrees with astronomy and with navigation. Uh, but then there's the dream loss, which is also tremendous and very, very um, damaging and very dangerous for our society. Because it was during dreams that for many, 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 many generations, our ancestors were able to come up with novelty, with new ideas, but also with something that made sense collectively. For instance, I'll give an example. If we were in a culture that valued dreams and valued not just the, the, the individual dream, but the collective dream, and this is something that indigenous populations, Native Americans are very good at, we probably wouldn't be in the situation we are now with COVID. We are, uh, we are uh, deprived. It's because we are deprived of this very strong neurobiological mechanism to simulate possible futures and simulate the consequences of our actions. Basically, people are not are disconnected from the consequences of their actions. They're disconnected from their past, from the ancestors. They're also disconnected from, from the future. They're not really, really paying attention and being responsible for the future. Of course, I'm generalizing here. Many people are. But we, in that case, we are under new selective pressure. We need to respond as a group, as a group cohesively. And I think what, what, we, what is happening now is that because of a loss of sleep and dreaming, we are becoming cranky, intolerant, cognitively impaired, and unable to respond cohesively in an empathic manner. So it's, it's, a, it's not a small crisis. Yeah, so I want to um, focus now a little bit on REM sleep, which you talk about in the book, one of the big sort of scientific breakthroughs in understanding dreams. So what did the discovery of REM sleep help us understand about dreaming very good very good question because it it helped a lot but it also uh produced some confusion in the in 53 rem sleep was discovered and in 57 um, the link with dreaming was uh, discovered and, and clearly established um in the beginning people thought that we only dreamt during rem sleep now it's clear that we dream most of the time we're dreaming we're dreaming when we are awake this this is it's always going on some level of, of reverberation of neuronal activity at any time. One problem that occurred in the 50s and 60s and, and well until the 90s is that many people in the biomedical field saw the discovery of REM sleep as a reason to dismiss dreams. People would say, well, dreams are subjective, inherently um, uh, fakeable, um, 
we don't really know whether people had this experience and, and we don't have methods to investigate it anyway. And it's not really a good scientific object. We should study REM sleep. This is what's solid. This is where um, there's, it makes sense to work. Um, and this view, I think, dominated neuroscience and psychology uh, for a long time. Then in the, in the late 90s, because of the work of people like uh, Bob Stickled in Harvard, um, Carlisle Smith in, in, in Trent, Canada, people started to realize that dreaming is one thing and REM sleep is another thing. Um, and then comes Mark Solms, a very important neurologist and, and psychoanalyst from South Africa who discovered in the late 90s and early years 2000s that there are certain neurological lesions in which people will have REM sleep, but they do not have the ability to dream. And those lesions happen to involve the, the punishment and reward system, the reward system in the brain that depend, depends on dopamine. So if you cannot um, desire something, if you don't have the, 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 the neurons that allow you to, to use dopamine to desire something that is good or to avoid something that is bad, you lose the ability to, to dream. So what this means is that dreams are not just the reactivation of memories, but they are the reactivation of memories with a purpose, with a, uh, with a goal, oriented towards a goal. Just like in waking life, during dreaming, we're also always pursuing something. I want to go from here to there. I want to meet that person and so on. Um, so in the past 20 years, people really moved away from this notion of reducing dreaming to REM sleep. And now we are starting to have a much better notion of what dream really are, is and, and how it evolved. Yeah, I remember when I was a kid, when I was growing up, there was this dominant narrative of your dreams being totally random and that if you looked into them in any way, it was sort of like akin to believing in magic in a way. You know, if you woke up in the morning and you had a dream and you were trying to think about what that meant, it was sort of anti-science. You know, REM sleep was proved in a way that there it was just random your brain was just firing off random things and that in your waking life analyzing it was meaningless in a way mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah this is actually uh, what happened in the 80s this notion that dreaming was random and it, that it served the purpose of erasing memories uh, and this was very influential very very famous people like uh, like francis crick you know nobel prize winner um, published a paper in Nature proposing something like this. Um, so it, it was a very it was a moment dominated by by anti Freudianism. So people did not want to accept that the dreaming had any meaning, uh, and because people really hated uh, psychoanalysis, Sigmund Freud in the biomedical environment in the eighties and nineties. But this has changed a lot. In my book, I go into detail about how several predictions or postulates of Sigmund Freud and Carl Jung uh, came to be corroborated, came to be verified by scientific research. Yeah. And so one of the other things that you write about is about dreaming and childhood. And I, I found that really compelling. I just spent some time with my 14-month-old nephew, and he's not, you know, speaking in full sentences or anything, but, you know, watching him sleep, it's like... He's definitely dreaming. Um, so how does this sort of development, how does brain development in waking life mirror 
that of in dreaming life? How does the, you know, childhood development, how are our dreams also progressing? Freud was actually one, one of the persons to say that uh, there's a strong continuity between waking life and dream life. Uh, and this has been studied uh, over many years by researchers like David Folks, starting in the, in the 60s, that showed that there is, a, there is a gradual development of the waking life that is parallel by what happens in the dream life. And he studied the same individuals from childhood to adolescence. And was, they would come to the lab every year and, and he would wake them up at specific moments during specific sleep states and collect dream reports and, and, and really give a very interesting um, um, view of, of how this mental software is, it matures slowly in involving various aspects of social life. Um, it, recently, researchers have performed experiments uh, not in the lab, but at, at, in the homes of people. And they found that uh, children are even more um, uh, prone to complex dreams than in the lab. When they're in the lab, they tend to be more afraid and, and dreams tend to be simpler. But when they're at home, when they feel safe, they can produce amazing uh, complex narratives even uh, at an early age. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's so fascinating that our... <laughs> Our dream life is mirroring our our waking life in so many different ways. But I want to move on to something that um, I think a lot of people are very curious about is creativity and problem solving in dreams. You talk about some really famous examples. Um, a lot, of, a one that people talk about a lot is that Paul McCartney came up with the melody for the song Yesterday in his sleep. And you talk about a lot of other historical, you know, mathematical and creative breakthroughs, um, what's going on in our dreams that allows us to figure out creative or mathematical problems when we're not even conscious that we're doing it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the, the neurochemical environment of REM sleep it facilitates um, the spreading of electrical activity beyond the most probable pathways. Uh, the, in particular, the lack of noradrenaline or norepinephrine during REM sleep allows this electrical activity to, to be uh, more noisy. It doesn't adhere strictly to, to the pathways that are most probable during the waking life. So, so this, this gives the, the possibility uh, for, for dreams to be highly associative. So you, you go from one thing to the next. It, it, I was dreaming with my mother, then it was my grandmother. I was in, in Brazil, then I was in the United States. So, so this, this, it's very fluid. Um, the, the, the dream experience is very fluid in part because of this neurochemical environment and also because of the functional neuroanatomy of REM sleep. That means which areas of the brain are functionally engaged in, in talking to each other during REM sleep. And what you will see is that there's a lot of activity in the back of the brain, in visual areas, a lot of activity in, the, in this default mode network, but there is little activity in most frontal regions. The prefrontal cortex is mostly um, inhibited. And because of that, the prefrontal cortex is important for us to have executive functions, for us to have uh, decision-making, for us to have the inhibition of the for us to have inhibitory control of certain uh, actions uh, so that one action can prevail. And when we have this circuit deactivated, 
what emerges is a, a, an experience that is marked by a lack of criticism. Anything goes. Nothing really shocks you during dreaming. There is no, you don't really have the, the ability to, to be very uh, in control of your decisions. Things happen to you more than you make them happen, right? This is different when people transit into lucid dreaming, when they have more frontal activity, and then they become able to really control, to guide, not, not only what they do as a, as a dream character, but also what happens in the dream scenario, in the plot. Right? So they go from being uh, an actress or an actor of, of an unknown movie towards being the, the director, the producer, the, and, 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 and the actor or actress of the, the dream. Yeah, my, my dad often tells this uh, story that it's become like a you know, family story, but he had to solve this really complicated mathematical problem. He studied uh, economics and um, he couldn't figure it out when he was awake. And then... He went to sleep and when he woke up, he had figured it out. Like he was totally at a mental block, like tried everything he could think of. It was just a complex equation, woke up and it came to him. He figured out how to solve it. He could never replicate that ever again. <laughs> so dreams are sources of potential solutions, right? You always have to go and test it against reality and see if it sticks and if it works. Um, but Dreams will provide potential solutions, and this can be propitiated. You can use your intention to make it more likely to happen. Uh, again, in, in cultures that value the art of dreaming, intention is always important. People don't go to dreams uh, to see what happens. They go to dreams with, with an idea on their minds. They, have, they want something from the dreaming. And if you put yourself in that context, you can enhance your chances of actually having a dream that comes up with a solution. But this is the catch. You cannot expect the dream to offer you a direct solution. Sometimes dreams can be a direct solution, right? There are plenty of examples in, in the antiquity. There was a term for that. The theorematic dreams were those that were exactly the same as will happen in the future, let's say. Right, so they can you can dream of a of a solution that you can go ahead and implement right away. But most of the times, and also because of the associativeness of dreaming, the solution will be a metaphor. It will be an allegory. It will be something that needs interpretation. And this is why we need to talk about dreams with our significant others in in the family environment, at work, in schools. We need to bring dreaming back as a topic of conversation and of concern. And not just of individual concern, of collective concern. Yeah. So to wrap up here, what do you think is the future of dream research? Hmm. I think that we are starting to understand the complexity of our minds. For, for about 100 years in the West, uh, we behaved as if we should not even talk about consciousness or mind or that we should only talk about the ego, this, the consciousness of, that, that identifies with the whole body and, and it has a name and it pays taxes every year. Um, the mind is occupied by many, many creatures, many, many representations that are the entities that we meet when we dream. And if we want to have a good future in relationship with these creatures, we should understand better what they are, how they are represented in the brain, how can we interact with them? This is how our mind was structured. And if we just deny it, and if we just forget about it, we may continue to produce a lot of unintended consequences without much reflection for past and future. 
In terms of the research, I think we have a lot to learn about lucid dreaming to understand better how to achieve it, how to use it in our favor, what are its potential risks, especially for specific uh, risk groups. Um, and basically, I think we need to, to produce um, an advancement of how we can use sleep and dreaming, not just to enhance uh, our ideas or to produce more, but to enhance our society, to live better with each other to use these very old techniques to live better as a group, as a, as a planetary and, and single group of humans. If, we, if the science does not go in that direction, if we just go into, let me be more productive, productive let, let me just acquire more stuff. If we continue using dreams just for that, if we, if we add dreams to our, to our list of techniques to just become better um, at acquire things, I don't think we'll... we'll honor our ancestors and certainly we want honor our descendants. I think that's a great a great place to end and a lot of interesting and important things to ponder, especially in the time that we're in right now. So I've just been talking with Siddhartha Ribeiro. He's the author of the new book, The Oracle of Night, The History and Science of Dreams. It's published by Pantheon. Siddhartha, thank you so much for taking the time. It was a true pleasure talking to you. Um, more about your research and your book. You're very welcome, Shoshana. Uh, very glad to be here having this conversation with you. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio with support from the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University. And if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us every Thursday at 10.30 a.m. on UPR. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcast. Our producer is Claire Scott, and our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Shoshana Buxbaum. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas. Thank you.